is the new way we work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor Kathleen Davis. On September 30th, billions of dollars of pandemic era childcare funding ran out, the so called childcare cliff. Some childcare providers, many of which are small business owners, said that these funds helped keep their centers afloat. The sudden lack of funding means that some childcare centers will have to raise their prices or close altogether. And then those higher rates mean that lower income parents won't make enough money to cover the cost of childcare, which means that they'll have to pull their children out and quit their jobs. Higher costs and lower enrollment then force the childcare centers to close, which means that the remaining parents will then either have to scramble to find childcare or quit their jobs as well. In other words, not only will the end of government aid and childcare funding impact the children and the care providers, but it has the potential to be a significant blow to the overall economy as women's workforce participation is likely to decline. Remember that when the pandemic first hit and most care was shuttered, more than 5.4 million women left or lost their jobs. Another victim of the funding cuts are childcare workers who may see their already low wages cut in the name of cost savings or lose their jobs altogether if their daycare centers they work at close. But in a moment in time when workers across industries are mounting high-profile union drives, the childcare industry has seemingly remained out of reach for many organizers. Why is it so difficult for childcare workers to unionize? What do the challenges for this industry mean for other low-wage workers? And what other obstacles does childcare in the U.S. face? Fast Company staff writer Pravitra Mohan has been covering the childcare crisis and recently wrote about why the industry has been so difficult to change. Pravitra, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's first start at what's happening in the childcare industry overall. We've covered the recent funding cuts and the so-called childcare cliff, and you spoke to a childcare provider in rural Wisconsin. What did she tell you? Yeah, so I mean, going back a little bit to what you mentioned previously, I think the pandemic was this sort of turning point, or it seemed like it might be this turning point and that this industry would get a lot of, you know, much needed investment. There was a $24 billion investment made in childcare, but that ended last month. And it doesn't seem like there are signs of new funding coming down the line, even though it's very much needed. So, you know, 70,000 centers might close, more than 3 million kids could potentially lose care. And so I think when I spoke with this provider, her name's Corinne, um, and again, she's based in rural Wisconsin, she really emphasized how important that funding was to not only get through the pandemic, but also just to reinvigorate the space. It shouldn't be seen as investment that was needed solely because of the pandemic. And I, I think what we're seeing now is that it is sort of being treated as, oh, that was pandemic era relief, and now the childcare industry should be back up on its feet. And I think that kind of ignores the fact that there has always been a lack of investment in this space. And so that was something that she really emphasized. And uh, without that funding, providers like Corinne are going to have to raise their prices um, and have already been forced to raise their prices as the funding has decreased over the last six months or so. So this was kind of astounding. She said that she's already raised her prices twice and will have to do so again when the Wisconsin funding ends. And between June 2023 and February 2024, she will have raised prices $60 per kid per week. 
which is really remarkable. And it's not, you know, families can't afford this. And so that was something that she really, really emphasized when we spoke. Uh, And an estimated 16,000 places or so closed, I believe, in the first two years of the pandemic. So I think we are going to start to see more and more organizations um, shut down as a result of this. That's a good point because it's like I almost think that the word crisis just follows the word childcare in people's minds now. It's this was a crisis. This industry was in crisis. It was unsustainable before the pandemic. You mentioned in that article that how many centers had already closed? I believe it was 16,000 that had closed between 2019 and 2021. So, I, you know, it could be even more at this point. And all of these issues that we're going to talk about, all of these issues that the childcare industry has existed pre-pandemic, got worse during the pandemic, and you're 100% right. It's not like, and then we gave them this money and now they're fixed. No, they were in crisis in 2019. We're just going back mm-hmm. to how it was then, but maybe even worse. And that that price increase that you talk about, I you know, I have kids in, in preschool and that's those price increases happen every year. It gets harder and harder. Like your wages don't go up the same, you know, and if you're on the borderline already, and you know, and we've covered this too, childcare costs as much as college tuition in a lot of mm-hmm. states. And and it ends up equaling, and this is something I highlighted at the beginning of the show, ends up equaling the take-home pay of a lot of parents. And then they have to make the decision to leave the workforce, drop out of childcare, hurts the economy bigger. It's just this like snowball of a, of a problem. Absolutely. Kind of the universal thing that we hear about the childcare industry so much is how low the pay is. Can you break down, because we're just talking about like tuition keeps going up. It keeps, it's so, so expensive. Mm-hmm. Can we break down, and we've talked about this on the show before, but I feel like this is something we need to like keep reminding people because I feel like they're like, oh, well, if prices are high, then why are the teachers paid so low? Yeah, right. It's this weird paradox, I think, where childcare is expensive for parents and families, but it's actually not compensating childcare providers fairly either. I mean, I think a lot of it just comes down to the cost of labor. I mean, labor is the primary expense when you're running this kind of a business. And I think specifically the ratios that are needed when you're caring for, you know, kids under the age of five. I think that's something that people don't entirely realize. And that's where traditional schools are maybe not the best point of comparison because they're not being forced to abide by those ratios. And the answer is obviously not to put more kids in the room. If you're faced with this issue of not being able to make ends meet as a child care provider, I think the only response is to raise tuition. And so then you're putting that cost on the parents and families. So yeah, I think the labor costs are probably the biggest issue. And these margins being really slim, I think, is also something that contributes to the poor pay because anytime there are these major fluctuations in enrollment, which we saw during the pandemic, a lot of daycares had to shut down or temporarily close because they just couldn't afford to operate when they had such low enrollment. So that makes it very hard for these businesses to stay afloat. And I think that's where we see how wages can get depressed because they are forced to let people go or lower wages even. And then I think the biggest reason for this is just this lack of federal funding and support that we do see for public schools, for example. And so often the result is providers like Corinne, who I mentioned earlier, they're not even paying themselves properly when they don't get that kind of investment. She actually noted that people like her have been sort of subsidizing the industry themselves all these years, which I thought was really compelling. And so I think it all kind of comes back to federal investment when we're talking about childcare. But I do think that is one of the big reasons why wages are so depressed. Those are a lot of great points because it's true. Public school teachers are famously not paid very well either, but public schools do get federal funding. And so that helps 
offset the cost a little bit. And then the other thing that's interesting, and we're about to talk about the labor movement and, and organizing within this space and why it's difficult, is that unlike maybe Amazon, for example, where we know the people who own the company are making a lot of money, we know that the executive level is making a lot of money, the owners of these childcare businesses are not fat cats that are raking it in and paying their their workers hardly any money, they're also not making very much money. Yeah, right. And so that makes it really difficult when you're trying to organize this space. When you're going after a trillion-dollar company that can absolutely afford to pay its workers more than $15 an hour, I think that's a completely different conversation. And it's not to say that that isn't a challenge. I mean, as you mentioned, Amazon, Starbucks, we've seen how union drives at these places have gone, and, and some have been more successful than others. But I think it's just a different calculus. I think there's something sort of psychological here, too, where it's difficult to organize at a childcare center when you know that the person running the center is struggling almost as much as the people they're employing to keep things afloat, to make ends meet. So I think there's a component of it that's just really challenging. And I think a lot of people in this space, they're in it because they care deeply about children. They feel really passionately about the work. So I think there's maybe also this psychological barrier to um, organizing in that way. But I think there's also these other issues that we have seen come up in other low-wage industries as well, where because of the low pay, there's a lot of turnover, right? The low wages, the ratios, the competition now from other jobs, like retail jobs now pay better than childcare jobs, right? And we saw a lot of industries that actually did quite well during the pandemic where they were able to raise wages, and it's become harder and harder now for these childcare providers to retain employees as a result of that. So turnover is a big issue. The isolation, I think, is an important part of this. And that gets back to this idea of this is a very fragmented space where you have these really large providers that are, I would say, quite rare. But there are a handful of these bigger providers like Bright Horizons, Kindercare, names that people have probably heard. And then you have a lot of these small businesses that are just sort of local daycares. And then you have these home-based daycares. And then you have nannies. And so I think this is a really kind of fragmented space. And that also means that a lot of these workers are isolated from each other, which we know is always a barrier to organizing. So I think that's another big piece of it. And then, of course, the profit margins, as we've discussed, being difficult. I think a lot of these issues are not necessarily unique to the childcare space, but it's just a confluence of all these different factors that make it difficult to organize. I mean, that's exactly it. And you hear about these other low-wage workers organizing. But again, like you said, it's easier because it's who are you going after? Amazon, that's a big corporation. Starbucks, that's a big corporation. Who are you organizing against when you work for a bunch of different small businesses and there's maybe only three people that you work with? Are you unionizing the three of you against your, not against, but you know, like with yeah, your with, with exactly. your owner who's also trying to scrape by? And that's interesting what you say, this a kind of emotional, more emotional connection and purpose-driven connection to your work that you probably don't have at Amazon or Starbucks or, you know, McDonald's or some of these other lower wage jobs. But when we talk about the childcare industry and the teachers there, the parallels always come in mind, and we've mentioned it a little bit with public school teachers. And everybody kind of knows that public school teachers have a very prominent union. And we talked about it a little bit, but what's the big difference between the childcare industry and public school teachers and how they were able to unionize and it's more challenging in the childcare industry? Yeah, I mean, so there's some differences here that really just come down to labor law. Um, Public employees organize differently under different laws, whereas private sector employees organize under the National Labor Relations Act. And so that is actually a very key difference, and it does help explain why 
public school teachers have been able to organize more effectively. The other thing I will just say is I think the privatization of the childcare industry just brings with it a lot of issues. But this is one of them where the National Labor Relations Act has been criticized for just not having adequate anti-retaliation protections, which does make it really difficult for low-wage private sector employees to organize. And again, we've seen this, right, with Starbucks and Amazon. And these. I think the challenge of going up against those big companies is that you are very likely to face retaliation. And so we've seen how that has played out. And so the same thing kind of applies here, where these workers are very vulnerable to begin with. They're kind of strapped for time to begin with. I think the idea of even trying to organize is sort of a difficult thing for them to think about and start doing. And then on top of that, you don't have these strong anti-retaliation protections if, let's say, your employer were to let you go as a result of you organizing. So those differences in how you unionize under the law, I think, actually are very important here. And I think there's also something to the fact that, again, this is a privatized industry and it is not seen as a public good in the way that public education is, right? And so I think that perception also plays into their ability to organize and advocate for themselves. Yeah. When we talk about what's wrong with the childcare industry, it always comes back to that. It's treated as like a private business rather than a public good, which is always, Mm -hmm. I've said it a million times on the show, like it's just baffling that it's like from birth to five, like you're on your own. And, but then we agree that when the kid's five, it's of the public interest to have an educated and cared for population. But before they're five, like up to you. Mm -hmm. It makes absolutely no sense. (laughs) It makes no, yeah. There have been a few cases, though, of childcare workers organizing. Can you explain how that worked, how that happened? Yeah. The thing to note here that's important is that it has been a specific type of childcare worker that's been able to organize in this way. And again, that goes back to private sector laws being just kind of more complicated and difficult. And the fact that this is such a fractured, fragmented space where it would be really difficult to get people to organize across, you know, small businesses, essentially. So the places where we have seen some success with this are the states where they have passed collective bargaining laws that allow family child care workers to organize and unionize in this way. And so, again, when we say family child care workers, we're talking about people who run a daycare out of their home. These people are really, really key to the industry. I mean, especially in rural areas, you will see largely only family child care businesses just because it's more difficult to keep these bigger daycares operational. And so these states that have passed these laws allowing these workers to organize, there's only about 11 of them. And at this point, I believe most of them do have collective bargaining agreements with those workers, but it really is specifically for this subset of the childcare industry. So again, like even where we've seen success with these unions, it's not covering the people at the bigger daycare centers or the nannies, for example. So one of the more notable recent uh, union drives was in California called the CCPU, and this was 45,000 childcare workers across California that came together and unionized. I believe it was the biggest union election in decades, which is pretty wild. And so this union, again, it's representing the family childcare workers across California. And I would say like the way that these unions have been able to form and be effective is because they are bargaining with the state. And so these employees are essentially saying, we should be seen as public employees because we do take subsidies from families that are lower income. And so in that way, they're able to kind of uh, classify themselves as public employees. But again, the downside here is that it really only applies to this subset of workers, which doesn't cover so many other people in the space. Are there other industries that have faced similar challenges? I'm thinking of home health workers or or domestic workers that face similar challenges. And then 
in those situations, what can be done in the absence of kind of formal unions? I think domestic workers are a really interesting example because they do not have any federal labor protections. They sort of fall between the private sector worker that can organize under the National Labor Relations Act and, let's say, the public sector employee. And I think as a result of that, they've actually been able to organize in interesting ways. The National Domestic Workers Alliance is, of course, um, sort of the primary advocacy group. And Ai-jen Poo, who um, leads that organization, has been able to make some really interesting strides that I think they wouldn't necessarily have been able to make if this group had not been carved out of federal labor law. And so they've been able to get the Domestic Worker Bill of Rights passed to help secure basic labor protections, you know, minimum wage, overtime, that sort of thing. And several states have already adopted that. I believe they're also trying to pass it at the federal level. But I think that's an interesting example of how you can sort of work around the lack of federal labor protections, I should say. And I think actually what happens with child care workers in a way is they're neither here nor there. So nannies do fall into the category of domestic workers, as far as I know. So some of them can get protections through that. And then we have, of course, these family child care workers that have organized with the state. But I think some of the other workers who are in these daycare centers who are really seen as private sector employees, their options end up somewhat limited in terms of how they can organize. There is one example, though, that is interesting. In New Mexico, there is a nonprofit group called Ole that has tried to organize child care workers, but I think they started as trying to unionize and then they sort of pivoted to policy advocacy because they did find unionizing more difficult. And they've actually brought parents into the fold. They've managed to make some interesting headway despite not being a union um, and despite not being able to organize in some of these other ways that we've talked about. And they've gotten, I believe, increased reimbursements and subsidies for both providers and parents. And I think maybe in that case, part of the reason they've been effective is they've brought families into the fold. So there are examples of structures and dates that have been able to do this effectively. I think it's really difficult. (laughs) But I do think we've seen some interesting examples of it. Yeah, I guess it does feel like for this particular industry, policy advocacy is probably the best way to go because it's so fractured. And yeah, it feels like such a double bind because it's like these are the workers who could benefit the most from union protections. But it's one of the most difficult industries to organize. Yet at the same time, it's a public good that when it falls apart, like other parts of the economy fall apart, too. It's really an, an industry that kind of can't be solved piecemeal like this. And, and we had a recent article from a childcare expert, Elliot Haspel. He outlined some of the hurdles that childcare funding faces, and the biggest of which is that lawmakers can't agree on where the funding should come from. What are some of the other hurdles that this faces? And is there anything that workers or providers or advocates that you've talked to? I know you mentioned the the Olay group in New Mexico. Anything that they're doing, other kind of like ways to <laughs> to fix this problem? Uh, it's so tough because, it, again, it always kind of comes back to we need federal investment. And I think we saw how that actually was effective during the pandemic and how so many of these organizations were able to stay afloat during that period. But I I don't know that, I'm not sure that there's a way around that. I think as much as we can sort of push for and advocate for the right policy changes, it's sort of hard to make progress beyond a point without that. I guess one of the things I would highlight that I haven't talked about is it is pretty impressive to see some of the gains that these labor unions have made, um, the ones that have organized with the state through collective bargaining. They've been able to get retirement benefits in California. So that is pretty remarkable. There are things that can be done. This is not the most hopeful response. (laughs) But I, I think we've seen that there are some 
pretty significant benefits to even organizing in these sort of smaller ways. And I think one other thing to keep in mind is just even if these unions are not including all childcare workers, it certainly helps in terms of bringing visibility to the issue. I think making these sort of gains, even for just family childcare providers, can help kind of lift the industry as a whole. And I think one thing that several people I spoke with mentioned is that when you're pursuing unions, even if, let's say, it's not a successful unionizing effort, I think there's something to be said about uh, sort of the narrative and the visibility that comes with these really sort of large, um, visible union efforts. And again, we've seen that with Starbucks and Amazon, right? There's a certain amount of attention that you get, whether that's press coverage or just getting the attention of lawmakers. I think there's something to be said about that and about there being, even if the end result may not be what we want, I think there's a reason to pursue these efforts to try and organize in ways that feel reasonable and within reach in these industries. So yeah, I don't know if that totally answers your question, but <laughs> but I think there's a lot of hurdles, <laughs> but we can do our best. It's something that that you mentioned in the New Mexico incidents, and it's also something that, that Elliot mentioned in his article, which is more parent advocacy. Like parents have not taken to the streets on mm. this issue in the same way that we took to the streets on abortion access or gun control. Part of me is like, it's because we're tired and busy. You know, it's the same kind of like reason why childcare workers don't kind of have the time to organize parents of small children who are working and trying to scrape by do not have the, the kind of the time to organize. But that parent advocacy, especially when it's like showing lawmakers that this is a voter issue and that you will vote for the candidate who backs this can make a difference. And I, I will say like it, it, it does feel like a piecemeal progress. There has been some things in like some states, obviously it's New York City, you know, passed universal pre-K several, several years ago, which was a game changer and honestly yeah. kept people working and kept people in the city. And then they upped it to 3K. Other states are kind of following that, but it's like, you know, it's the same sort of problem with, and Elliot has written about this too, of, of like linking childcare as a, like a job linked benefit. You lose your mm -hmm. job, you lose your childcare oh, it's great if you happen to live in New York and you get free pre-K, but if you live in New Jersey, you don't. It's this like a solution for some and not for all. And what we what we need is a solution for all. Right. I mean, I think that also explains why, putting aside the fact that, as you said, parents of children under five are just exhausted. And I, I think that is actually a big reason why it's been hard to get more sort of parent advocacy in this space. But I think, again, yes, it's a really fragmented space. And so I think you have the parents of kids who have nannies, you have parents who are putting their kids in daycare centers, you have parents who are putting their kids in pre-K programs, which are actually an interesting part of this as well, because those do get um, sort of swallowed up by the public school system, right? And so they do actually get public funding. Um, and so that creates this other wrinkle where you do have some of these childcare workers that are being covered by the public model, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's just really difficult in a space that is this sort of diverse. I think it's hard on both the provider side and the family and parent advocate side. Um, and I think that it, that explains why it's been so difficult to make headway here. Putting aside the federal investment piece of it, which I think we should come back to as, as being kind of the, the root of the issue. Yeah. It's like, you know, what's the hopeful note? What's the, the, to end on. But I, I guess I will say, and this is like a drum that I, I've beat for a long time with paid parental leave and paid leave in general, is that a lot of times these issues are viewed as like a parent's issue, a mom's issue, like not my issue. If I don't have kids, why should I care about it? Or if my kids are older, but it's really 
an economy issue. You know, I, I highlighted at the beginning of the show, like it's a domino effect. The childcare industry doesn't have the funding. They raise the prices. The kids can't go anymore. The women most likely drop out of the workforce. The economy gets hurt. So this is, you know, we're, we're saying we need more parent advocacy, but I would say we probably just need more overall advocacy. Yeah. It's a business issue at the at the end mm-hmm. of the day. If you want to have employees and you want to have a strong economy and then you want to have a good future workforce too, learning does not start at five years old. <laughs> you know, like you, yeah. you want to invest in early childhood education as well. Yeah. And I think, again, like that, that has been a lot of the issue historically is that they are not seen in the same way as other educators. And for some reason, we devalue, you know, early childhood education, which does not make much sense to me. We can look to other countries and see the way that they've approached this issue, right, to see an example of how it can be done differently. So <laughs> that's, yeah, that's that's going to be our, our hopeful note to end on is like, just do better. Just do better, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Fithra, thank you so much for joining me. You have a really great wealth of knowledge in this space and have broken it down and explained why this industry was in crisis before and especially is in crisis now. Thank you. I hope it made sense. This is a bit of a complicated issue to talk about, especially when we're talking about labor law and whatnot. But thank you so much. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And we want to hear from you. Work is changing every day. What's the most pressing issue on your mind? Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com or share on social media with the hashtag The New Way We Work. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen and Julia Shu with editing by Nicholas Torres. 